Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, part three of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. Twenty. Over the next week, I download video from the cameras twice and retrieve the GPS tracker from Vitaly's car. We now have a fairly complete picture of his daily activities. The batteries on the camera seem to be holding up, so Rebecca and I decide to leave them in place until the night I kill him. The GPS information turned out to be not as useful as we had hoped. In hindsight, it was an unnecessary risk, but it was a way to pass the time. The hardest part of all of this is the waiting. The adventure of purchasing, planting, retrieving, and reviewing the information from the tracker was more for us to have something to do rather than to do something to further the plan. We lay a calendar from the neighborhood pizza place on the kitchen table and pick a day. Saturday night, actually, Sunday morning. 4 a.m. is when he is reliably bedded down, and on Saturdays he comes home very drunk and is likely to be more careless than he usually is. Rebecca shows off the results of her recent shopping spree. We found a medical surplus place that had disposable paper suits that emergency room doctors and nurses wear over their scrubs to keep bodily fluids from soaking their clothes. They also sell a lot of them to people who do home remodeling so our purchase wasn't remarkable. She also found a slick polyester running suit for me, one that was jet black, and a black ski mask as well. From a garage sale, she purchased a box of assorted tools, one of which is an ice pick. Disposing of it is going to be a challenge, and I haven't quite worked that out yet, but I have a few good ideas involving a nearby river and a blowtorch. The remaining element of our plan is our alibi. If we do everything right, we won't need it but we decide to establish one anyway. We have reservations at a romantic lover's retreat and have worked out a way for me to get in and out without anyone noticing. It's actually only about five miles away from Vitaly's place, so there shouldn't be a problem getting there and back undetected. The one thing left to do is wait. 21. It's Friday. We've taken the day off from our respective jobs. My boss was happy to approve my request for a day off, especially when I told him Rebecca and I were having a little getaway weekend. We drive to the cemetery and park near the entrance. I haven't been here since the funeral, and I don't think Rebecca has either. I warn her that it might be dangerous doing something out of the ordinary. She counters that going on a romantic weekend with her ex-husband is out of the ordinary as well. People will see it as part of our road to reconciliation. I reiterate my concerns trying to convince her that if someone sees us, it could endanger all the work we've done so far. She dismisses my paranoia. They'll think it's a coincidence, or divine intervention, or they'll think it was part of an elaborate master plan we cooked up to exact revenge. I don't give a damn. 
I need to see him. I have no argument for that. All right, I'm sorry. You don't have to be. You're just looking out for me. I wish, I start to say. Don't. Don't even think it. You looked out for our son in every way you could. I start to cry. So does Rebecca. Do you remember what I told you at the hospital? She asks. I think back. Her words are seared in my mind. You said, I forgive you. I did, and I do. I needed you to know that, even though you didn't ask me for forgiveness. Because the only thing I could think of was what if it had been me driving him to school that day? My sobbing becomes uncontrollable. We sit on a nearby stone bench, and I bury my face in the nook between her neck and shoulder. He didn't run into the street. We always told him not to, and he was so good about that. Vitaly drove onto the grass. He had to knock down a sign to hit Nick. If it had been me. She has trouble going on. I lift my face and look into hers. She has that same look she did at the hospital when she offered her unconditional forgiveness. There are a million things that could have happened that might have changed everything, but they didn't, and it wasn't your fault. Vitaly killed him, not you. She holds me in her arms, and we stay that way for a while. My tears dry in the wind. Early spring smells are in the air along with the scent of flowers left by the graves. Rebecca takes my hand, stands, and we walk the rest of the way to Nick's grave. There are some plastic flowers there, possibly left by his grandmother or maybe someone from the school. We didn't bring flowers. Instead, I pull out one of his favorite toys from my pocket, a small Lego minifigure. He loved rearranging their parts and adding various weapons, tools, and other devices by which he imagined they could fly and do battle with his other toys. I set what looked to me like an insane test pilot, cobbled together from a few other characters, and outfitted with a helmet and goggles, with a crazy bared-teeth expression on his tiny yellow face, on top of the stone marker. Rebecca adds some sort of futuristic-looking ray gun to his tiny plastic hand. It's so big and heavy we have to pose him sitting down. It makes us both laugh, thinking about how he would bring us little creations like that one and show off every little detail. Yuck, what am I supposed to do with flowers? He would have said if we bought a more traditional offering. Only, of course, he can't say anything now. We hold hands in front of the marble marker. Etched deep into the stone are the words, Nicholas Argent, beloved son of Rebecca and Richard, and the dates upon which he was born and died. Rebecca is right. We need to be here today, no matter what. After a while, Rebecca breaks the silence and tells me a story about the first time he dressed himself, his socks mismatched, shirt on backwards, and wearing pajama pants. I remember one about his irrational fear of vampires, how he was convinced that they were real and they were going to get him, and how he drove to the grocery store to buy garlic to hang over the doors to my apartment. We go on like that for a long time. and the parlance of Barb and Brian Brown, we're having a love day. And for the first time in a long time, it feels good. 22. We leave the apartment around noon on Saturday, me driving Rebecca's car. I take us to the overnight lot next to the train station where my car is waiting. Rebecca slides behind the wheel and follows as I exit the parking lot and head back onto the street. About two blocks from our final destination, I pull into the parking lot for a body shop that has closed over the weekend. No one will notice an extra vehicle parked there. I slide back behind the wheel of Rebecca's car and we drive onto the Sierra Winds Retreat and Spa. Not much of a retreat, really as it's surrounded by many malls and numerous building developments. Likely when they first opened, the area was more remote, 
but there are strategically placed rows of trees and hedges that give it the illusion of seclusion. We make a stop at the office, check in with the clerk, and drive on to our personal cabana. The units are all separate, so there's no chance of hearing someone else's headboard banging against the wall. And much to our benefit, the doors all face away from the center of the compound. So when you look out of yours, you see only the perimeter foliage, creating a rather respectable oasis amid a dense suburban community. I park by the front door of our little cabin. Rebecca notices that there's an alley between a couple of the bushes, visible only from our unit. Another card stacked in our favor. Sneaking away in the middle of the night is going to be very easy. I pull her bag out of the trunk as Rebecca unlocks the door. It's a very nice, cozy space, opening into a living room with a wide, deep couch, facing a gas fireplace. A big screen TV hangs over the mantel, and there's a kitchenette with a bar off to the side. A door leads to the bedroom, with a king-sized bed made up in silk sheets. On the other side of the room is a large, heart-shaped bathtub. Rebecca points out the mirrors on the ceiling. I'd hate to see this room with a black light, she jokes. Do we have to stay here the whole time? I shrug. Nope. Let's go to the movies. I haven't been in ages. Yeah, great idea. Any idea what's playing? We passed a multiplex on the way. Are you feeling adventurous? Maybe. Well, we'll walk up to the box office, and the next show at that moment is the one we see. Okay, I'm in. Could be a 3D horror movie, I warn. Could be a foreign chick flick, she counters. We can grab dinner after, someplace with steak. Perfect. I throw our bag on the bed, and we head back out to the car. 23. It's dark when we get back. We make a point of waving at the clerk in the office as we drive by. He nods, recognizing us. I park behind the cabana, and we re-enter our weekend hideaway. I'm going to try and take a nap, I tell Rebecca. I don't think I'll sleep at all tonight, she tells me. I don't want to make any mistakes. This is it. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I nod, then cross into the bedroom and lie down on top of the sheets. Rebecca joins me, and we lie together like we did the night after the verdict. Only this time, I do fall asleep. At 2 a.m., the alarm on my phone goes off, and I wake up. I hear the TV in the other room. Rebecca is watching some reality TV show. I can't tell which one. She turns and sees me standing in the bedroom door. I was just about to wake you. I put out your stuff. Rebecca looks at the black running suit she bought neatly folded on the back of the couch with the ski mask draped on top, all laid out for my first day of being a killer. Thanks. I pick up the clothes and go back into the bedroom. It doesn't take me long to change. Rebecca enters with a black knapsack. She opens it and shows me the contents. A paper gown, paper booties, a pair of rubber gloves, and a wooden-handled ice pick. Second thoughts? Rebecca asks. Not a one. I take the knapsack, cinch the top shut, and throw it over my shoulder. I check my watch. I'll be back as soon as I can. Don't forget the cameras. I won't. We stand there, frozen. What else are you supposed to say to someone before you go off to kill their son's murderer? If anything goes wrong, just leave. Don't take any chances, she says. I won't, I promise. You won't lose me too, I think, but can't say out loud. I take a deep breath, offer Rebecca a confident nod, then grab the ski mask and quietly make my way out of the cabana to the alley entrance. I walk back down to my car at the body shop. I drive to Vitale Street, park a block away from his house, and walk the rest of the way in the shadows. No one sees me. No one drives by. The houses are all dark. Not even a dog barks. I put on the ski mask as I sneak around Vitaly's house. I peek into the garage window. It's empty. I check my watch. It's almost three. He should be home by now, passed out in his bed, 
but he's not. I walk around the house and recover the surveillance cameras we had planted and stuff them into the bottom of my pack. I debate waiting for him inside the house, but decide that's too risky, and instead find a comfortable spot between a bush and a fence on the side of the garage and wait. I play the plan over and over in my head, picture him lying on his bed and my hand driving the ice pick into his chest. I know exactly what I have to do. Rebecca and I studied the video from the cameras for countless hours. Vitaly was nothing if not predictable. Saturdays, the GPS showed him leaving the restaurant around midnight, stopping for an hour or so at what we assumed to be some random woman's apartment, then returning home alone. But he is late tonight. Was he even coming home? Headlights sweep up the street. The black Maserati pulls into the driveway. The garage door opens. The car goes into the garage and the engine shuts off. The car door opens and slams shut. Suddenly, I second-guess my plan of just assuming I'll find an unlocked door or window. I hear the door between the garage and the house open and close. Then the overhead garage door starts to move along its track. I spring from my hiding place and rush to step over the electric eye and duck under the door before it shuts. I'm inside. I sit against the car on the side opposite the door to the house. The automatic light on the garage door opener clicks off. I check my watch. I hear the faint sound of glass clinking. Sometimes he has another drink or two before collapsing on his bed. Random footsteps, I can't tell from where. Then a laugh. A woman's laugh. Rebecca's words come back to me. If anything goes wrong, just leave. The only way out now is through the house, but I can't chance it. I wait. The woman screams ecstatically while he fucks her. It doesn't take long. She's upset about something. There's more screaming, but not from passion. More footsteps. A door slams. I think it's the front door. There are small decorative windows in the garage door. I take a peek. A woman is walking quickly away from the house, a cell phone to her ear. She stops to put on her shoes that continues on her way. I wait. Five minutes. Ten. There are no sounds. I open the knapsack, take out the paper suit, and put it on. I squeeze my hands into the rubber gloves, slip on the booties, and grip the ice pick in my right hand. Slowly, quietly, I turn the knob on the door to the house and gently ease it open. It's darker than I expected. The paper suit makes a rustling sound which barely covers the pounding of my heart. I walk through the kitchen, into the living room, and down a hallway where the bedrooms are. I hear snoring and relax. In a few moments, it will be over. The door to the bedroom is open. I walk in. From the light that leaks in through the bedroom window, I see him sprawled out on the bed, naked, face down. Shit. In my mind, every time I played it out, he was lying face up. The hitman I'm mimicking always stabs his victim in the chest, not the back. I need to turn him over. I've come this far. I need to take a chance, just one. I put the ice pick on his night table, then gingerly move his right arm against his side. He doesn't react, and just keeps on snoring. I grab his left shoulder and his left hip and pull his slight frame toward me. Slowly. I get him on his side, then shift my hands to ease him gently onto his back. Who the fuck are you? He says. I jump, surprised. He just lies there, staring at me with one eye, the other seemingly stuck shut. He's obviously drunk, but also obviously awake. I remember why I'm there, but there's no ice pick in my hand. I look around furtively in the dark. Where the hell did I leave it? A nightstand. I grab for the ice pick. Vitelli watches me, puzzled. 
What's going on? Am I in the hospital? He looks around, trying to get his bearings. While his gaze is averted, I raise my hand and then drive the ice pick directly into the spot I'm aiming for, just to the left of the sternum. It goes in easily, right between the ribs. His eyes go wide. He looks at me and his mouth opens, wanting to scream but only able to make a weak, gurgling sound. Then he grabs my wrist with his left hand. There's something else I need to do, something I'm forgetting. Then I remember. The hitman makes sure to maximize damage to the heart by swirling the ice pick around in the chest cavity. It's a lot harder than you might expect. A look of supreme agony crosses his face, and he grunts in pain, but his grip is firm. I let go of the ice pick and use my left hand to try to pry his fingers off my wrist, but I can't work them free. Then, another hand, wearing a rubber glove, and at the end of an arm clad in a paper suit identical to my own, reaches over and pulls the ice pick out of Vitaly's chest. Blood bubbles out of the wound. I turn and see Rebecca. She doesn't look at me. She places her left hand on Vitaly's face, turning it slightly away from us. Then she plunges the ice pick through his temple. His groaning stops, and a trickle of blood leaks out of his mouth. She lets the weapon sit there for a moment, then moves her hand and grasps the wooden handle so she can better move the slender steel spike around his brain, shredding whatever life remains in him. His death grip on my wrist loosens, and I take a step back. Rebecca calmly pulls the ice pick out of his head and turns to me. The bag. Where's the bag? She asks. I look around, trying to remember. The garage. Let's go, she orders. I want to ask her what she's doing there. I want to yell at her for not sticking to the plan. I want to ask what the hell she was thinking. Instead, I follow her to the garage. She strips off her paper suit, wrapping the ice pick in it, and stuffs it in her gloves in the bag. I do the same without thinking about it. Did you touch anything? I look around, see the windows in the garage door. Maybe the garage door by those little windows. She uses my ski mask to wipe it down, then adds the mask to the bulging knapsack and takes me by the hand and leads me back through the house and out the back door. We walk briskly around the house and down the street to my car. About fifty feet away, I see her car. Go, she orders. We'll talk back at the cabana. She walks to her car, gets in, and drives off. I get into my car, wait a couple of minutes, then start it and drive back to the auto body shop near the resort. From there, I walk back to the alley and follow it to the cabana. Rebecca's car is parked right where it was when I left. The lights are out in the cabana. I walk up to the door, open it, and gently close it behind me as I step into the dark room. She is standing there in the gloom, looking at me. I just couldn't sit here she explains. She waits for me to say something, but I don't. I needed to see him die. After you left, I got into the car, put it in neutral, and was able to roll it most of the way into the alley before I needed to start it. I drove till I found your car, then waited for him to get home. When I saw the woman in the car, I thought you would call it off, and I almost left, but then I saw you sneak into the garage while the door was closing. When you didn't come out of the house, I figured you didn't see that he had brought someone home, so I waited some more. Eventually, the girl came storming out the front door and walked past me on the opposite side of the street. She was so busy talking on her cell phone that she didn't notice me. I saw the lights go on in his bathroom, then off, and after a few moments, I decided to go in. I had an extra suit and gloves stashed in the car. The front door was still open. No one saw me. Once I was inside, I put on the stuff, then you came in. You headed straight for the hallway from the kitchen and didn't see me in the dark corner of the living room. I wanted to call out to you, but I couldn't. 
I didn't want to take a chance that if you saw me there, you wouldn't go through with it. Then you went into his room. I followed. I watched from the doorway as you rolled him over. When he woke up, I almost ran to you, but then you grabbed the ice pick and drove it into his chest. Oh, God, that was so beautiful. When he was holding on to you, I thought, I thought he's never going to die. I don't even remember walking across the room or pulling the ice pick out of his chest. I saw his face, and even in the dark, I could tell he recognized us. And then, when I stabbed him in the head, I thought, now it's over. Now it's done. And he knows who fucking did it. I finally break my silence. We had a plan. Everything we did to cover our tracks, to establish an alibi. No one saw me leave, and when I came back, I turned off the engine and coasted in from the alley with my lights off. Someone might have seen your car, or you sitting in it, walking in through the front door of the house of the man who killed our son. What if no one saw? It's okay. She walks up to me, takes my face in her hands. It's okay. He's dead. You did it. We did it. It's over. I grab her wrists. I'm about to say something, but she kisses me. She kisses me hard, and I kiss her back. Passion engulfs us. We start doing a clumsy dance toward the bedroom, unable to loosen our grip on each other until we fall onto the mattress. It's the most incredible sex of my life. 24. I wake up. The sun shines through a crack in the drapes. Rebecca is asleep, and I don't wake her. I find our overnight bag and pull out my change of clothes. Then I find the knapsack and take it over to the fireplace. It's gas and lights easily. The paper suits burn quickly. The gloves melt into charred, gooey blobs. I take the ice pick and place it in a Ziploc bag along with the cameras, roll them up inside the knapsack, and tuck it into the bottom of the overnight bag. We really did it, didn't we? It wasn't a dream, she asks from the bedroom door. I turn to her and nod. When do you think someone will find him? I don't know. Could be today. May not be until later in the week. Depends on whether anyone really misses him. What time is it? I'm hungry. I look to my wrist, but my watch isn't there. I experience a moment of panic, like the one I had when my boss called me into his office. I imagine that I left it in the garage when I put on the paper suit and gloves. I imagine it coming off when Vitaly was clamped onto my wrist and the police finding it in his hand when the body is discovered. Rebecca turns back into the bedroom, ducks inside a moment, then returns. She tosses the watch to me with a laugh. Don't worry, she tells me. Breakfast? Lunch? I slip the watch on my wrist and check the time. Lunch? Jeez, it's almost checkout time. Time for a shower? I nod. Rebecca grabs her stuff out of the overnight bag and heads toward the bathroom. I turn off the fireplace and gather up the ashes with a paper towel and wash them down the sink at the bar. I make a pass through the room, searching for anything that would betray us. There is nothing, of course. I've been very careful. And despite Rebecca's involvement, she's right. There's nothing to worry about. At some point over the next few days, Vitaly's body will be found. Someone will call us to ask if we've heard. We'll be surprised, disbelieving at first, and we'll listen to everyone tell us how he deserved it and how God works in mysterious ways. I don't expect we'll hear from the police or the district attorney who barely tried to prosecute him, but if we do, we're ready. I turn on the television while I wait for Rebecca to finish her shower. Flipping through the channels, I come across a local midday news show. After a recap of the previous night's baseball games, there is a breaking story. A reporter stands in front of Vitaly's house. There's yellow police tape stretched across the front yard, and police cars parked in the driveway, their lights flashing. 
The body of Anthony Vitale, son of the notorious crime boss, Tony Vitale, was discovered early this morning by a female friend. Details of how he died are not forthcoming at this time, but it's obvious by the attention the scene is receiving that the police are treating this as a homicide. Vitale drew attention some months ago for his involvement in a traffic accident that resulted in the death of a young boy. He was acquitted of charges in that case, but could not evade the fate that caught up to him last night. I hear Rebecca's cell phone ringing in the bedroom. Mine rings in my pocket. I answer. While I listen to my mother tell me the news, I hear Rebecca answer her phone. She plays it perfectly, asking questions. How? Do they know who did it? Thank God that bastard's dead, she adds. I tell my mom that I saw the story in the news. She tells me she's been praying for something like this to happen, praying for justice for Nick. She asks me if I'm with Rebecca. Yes, she's here, I answer. Rebecca ends her call and comes and sits down next to me. Is that your mom? She asks. I nod and hand her my phone. They talk for a while. By the end of their conversation, Rebecca is in tears. She says goodbye to my mom, then we scan the local channels for more news. It turns out the woman who stormed out came back a short while later. She had left her keys behind. I figured it out in my head that she must have come back just minutes after we drove away. Another panic attack washes over me. How could we have been so reckless? I should have left the house when I saw that woman leave. That was not part of the plan. Rebecca puts her hand on my leg. Come on, we have five minutes to check out. I collect our bags, put them in the trunk, and then drive us to the office. The clerk is the same one who checked us in. When he asks, we tell him how great it was, and yes, we plan on coming back. There is a restaurant across from the body shop. We stop to have lunch. Our cell phones continue to ring. Rebecca posts a message to her Facebook page, thanking everyone for their thoughts and prayers. I send out a tweet to the same effect. We answer a couple of the calls, then turn our phones off. It's the same conversation over and over. Our food arrives and we dig in hungrily. Rebecca looks at me with a combination of concern and uncertainty. We should talk about what we did last night. I mean, this morning. The thing after the thing, when we... That was really nice, I say. Yes, and I think I'd like to do it again, but maybe not right away. Oh. I mean, it was in the heat of the moment, and we've been so wrapped up in everything else that I think we should take some time to figure out where we are with each other. Okay. But you don't have to sleep on the futon anymore. Good. My back hates that thing. Rebecca reaches over and places her hand on mine. Thanks for understanding, she says with a smile. I finish off my sandwich. You know, it's not completely over yet. The first thing, I mean. I know. Still some stuff I need to do, and there's always a chance someone will ask us questions. I'm ready. Good. Rebecca pushes the rest of her half-eaten lunch away and gazes out the window. In some ways, I feel closer to her than I ever have. But in others, she's as far away as the moon. 25. When I arrive at work on Monday, everyone looks at me expectantly. Before I settle down at my cubicle, a few co-workers gather around. Heard the news. Guess that guy had it coming, huh? You're not going to get an argument from me on that, I reply. Do you know anything about how he died? Who did it? Just what was on the news. Might have been something to do with the mob. I heard that, too. His dad is some mafia big shot. They gave him a Colombian necktie. You know, where they slit the throat and pull the tongue out? That's a myth. You can't do that with a tongue. I heard he was shot in the head and had his balls cut off. I hope they did the second part first, I add. How's Rebecca taking it? I think we're both kind of mixed about it. I mean, it doesn't bring Nick back, but damn, I wanted to do a jig when I saw it on the news. 
Well, the entire city can rest easier with him off the streets. I know I will. Yeah, they should have never let him walk. Not walking anywhere anymore. Thanks, guys. With or without him, we still have work to do here, I remind them. They sense my reluctance to continue the conversation and return to their tasks. One of the junior admins approaches. Hey, I was uh, running some diagnostics on Friday when you were out. Found a weird partition on one of the drives in the storage pool on the sand. Looks like it's encrypted. I couldn't find any reference to it in the configuration files. I shrug. Could be an old recovery partition. Some of those drives we reclaimed from old servers a while back. I'll take a look. Thanks. He nods, seemingly satisfied with my explanation. I make a mental note to scrub the partition from the drive and run a shredder utility on the sectors where it lived. I won't be needing it anymore. The mistakes I've made along the way start to pile up in my mind. It's a miracle everything turned out as well as it did. Twenty-six. At the group, there's an upbeat vibe. Most everyone shares the relief we feel, knowing that our son's killer is dead. But no one says anything out loud. Barb starts up the group. There are no new parents this week, so she opens the floor up for anyone who has anything to share. I start turning in our direction. Rebecca and I smile. We have a bit of news, Rebecca says. News? Brian interrupts. <laughs> Glory hallelujah, that greasy asshole is dead! He starts a slow clap. Others join in. Barb conspicuously sits with her hands folded on her lap. Amy is the first to speak when the clapping dies down. How does it feel? Rebecca turns to her, sighs. I almost hate to admit it, but it feels great. I finally feel like Nick can rest. I feel like I can close my eyes at night, knowing that he's not out there still having a life, maybe killing someone else. He'll never hurt anyone ever again. What about you? Barb asks me, an almost scolding tone in her voice. Ding dong, the bastard's dead, I say casually, without a tinge of guilt or remorse. Well, Barb continues, I suppose it's reasonable to experience some joy in the realization of justice. But remember, she cautions the members of the group, he was someone's child too. His parents could show up here with the same feelings all of us share, the same shadow over their lives. Is that something to celebrate? Damn straight it is, Brian says. This was no innocent kid. He was a killer. His parents should be ashamed to have raised such a monster. And from what I've heard, it's probably his father's mob ties that got him killed. Like an all rotten hell. Brian, Barb shouts. Sorry, hon, but I'm having a full-on hate day. Wish whoever took him would pay a visit to... Stop! Don't you say another word. Or I swear I'll walk out right now and you can sleep in the garage. Brian silences himself. I sense he is genuinely remorseful for voicing his feelings in that way. Barb scans the room, daring anyone else to challenge her. I think we should adjourn for the night. I hope all of you take some time to reflect on your feelings and think about who you are and who you want to be and what your children would think of you if they saw you acting this way. She gathers her coat and purse. Brian follows. The cancer parents also depart. The rest of us stay in silence for a while. Old Harold, sitting unnoticed in a corner of the room, looks up for the first time, speaks. He really was a bad person and deserved to die. He turns his gaze to Rebecca and me. If you don't rejoice and celebrate his death, then you're dead too. Your son is doing freaking cartwheels around you. Can't you see him? Rebecca looks to the empty space in front of us and smiles. I'm glad for you, 
I wish all of you lived long enough to see the people who took your loved ones die an early and painful death. Even that is too good for them. Harold stands. His coat and hat are on a chair next to him. He picks them up and puts them on while walking to the door. Once he's gone, what remains of the group dissolves into a sea of babbling conversation. Old Harold gave us permission to embrace our most base human emotions, and we do so with abandon. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanddae.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.